You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Good afternoon. This is John Corr and the Reverend Bishop C.L. Mitchell coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona. This is the Living Truth Podcast. In case you are new to us, we are two friends who love to get together to talk about the Word of God and discuss scriptures and theology and Jesus and life. And we have a good time and fun time doing it, usually over a cup of coffee, which we happen to have with us right now. And uh, we have been going through the book of Jonah, and uh, we uh, uh, have been enjoying that. And we finally got the man out of the fish and onto dry land, and we are in chapter 3. But before we get started, I want to say hello to my, my buddy. Hello, sir. Reverend, how are you doing, sir? I am well. How are doing, you doing? That? I'm doing excellent. I'm doing excellent. It's been uh, we had a wonderful time this morning recording the previous episode. Yes. Uh, soon to be released, and now we uh, we're recording another episode, and uh, and so what we're going to do today or right now for this broadcast is we're going to pick up where we left off. I'm going to read uh, from the end of chapter two, verse ten, and read chapter three, and then we'll we'll get into it. So. Uh, if you have your Bibles, um, you can open up to Jonah 3. So Jonah 2 verse 10 says, Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Chapter 3 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim, it, uh, proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Wow, what a what an amazing chapter. What an amazing response. Uh, so far in Jonah, we've, of course, followed him and his own reaction to God's calling and him running away and taking a boat the opposite direction, and of course, causing um, a 
big chaos and storm on the boat and being tossed in and a big fish sent by God swallowing him up. And of course, in chapter two, uh, he prays to God in the whole chapter and um, and then God brings him to his final destination in, in verse 10. And we started talking about last time uh, several things about the Lord uh, using somebody like a Jonah and giving him a second chance and the grace and mercy of God. We talked about the mercy of God and how God was long suffering and is long suffering. And he is, boy, he's a patient God. And so we finally come to, to the point where uh, where Jonah does deliver the message. And I think we talked about last time how uh, it, he might have let, let things out and maybe uh, he was reluctant in sharing this message, but the difference wasn't him, it was God. The difference was the Holy Spirit who prepared the people and had used um, even Jonah's reluctance in um, ministering and bringing repentance to the people. And so I think uh, verse 5 is where we can pick up Yes, sir. The response of the people of Nineveh. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth, and the greatest of them to, to, to the least of them. Wow. You didn't see that coming. I don't know about you, but, you know, I mean, I, I was hoping for a harder, uh, you know, for, you know, a harder st- uh, st- spent there, you know, in, in, uh, in Nineveh. But um, their response uh, is... is um, quite miraculous in fact i don't know if i could think think of a better response in all scripture or in all the old testament mm-hmm. you know jesus even talks about hey the men of nineveh people of nineveh will rise up against this particular city because they responded and condemn it and condemn it because they responded and yet so many greater than jonah is here so let's talk about it so in this text john the last time that we were conversing i mentioned a bit of a controversy that amongst academics, one of the arguments that ensue is the argument of whether or not the belief in verse 5 and the following um, activity right. in the post-text or in the verses that follow, uh, whether or not this is an authentic faith in Yahweh, or if this is just sort of a generalized belief in the gods, or in a god, indefinite article, and the and the true god, then accommodates them for at least their effort. Who's asking this question? Who's who's challenging their belief? Well, there are there are some. Um, scholars who look at the first testament and, and frankly they struggle over things like this right yeah um an example of that would be um the issue with uh um nebuchadnezzar and the idea did he really believe in the god yahweh um and uh when darius declared god god um uh, because he was able to rescue Daniel, etc. Right. Uh, were these individuals who were clearly pagans asserting a faith in Yahweh? It, I think, John, if we look at the text here, 
the text seems to give us hints as to the legitimacy of their belief, right. as well as the object of their belief. Um, first of all, if you look at verse number five, verse number five comes within the framework of the larger context of the book. Right. This is not the first time we've seen pagans reacting to the God of Israel right. uh, or the God of the uh, chosen people. I highlight then chapter number one where you have the mariners right. who um, uh, are in verse number 16 brought to a reverential respect or fear of Yahweh and they offer a sacrifice to him and make vows. You know, you know what, just to interject, at first they'd say, in chapter one, it says, uh, they go to Jonah and says, get up, uh, call on your God, not mm -hmm. knowing which God he was. And then they pray to his God. But then it says, perhaps your God will be concerned about us. And then they cast lots, they find out who Jonah, Jonah says, I, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, Yahweh, mm -hmm. Elohim, Yahweh, Lord, Elohim, God, I fear the Lord God, and I'm pleading from the presence of the Lord. Of course, now they realize oh, he's a servant of Israelites, God, and then they sacrifice what? In verse 16, they feared the Lord, Yahweh, and sacrificed to the Lord. So they know they have a knowledge of who this God is. Now, fast forward in chapter 3. Now, that knowledge is maybe an ambiguous knowledge to 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 date because right. they have not had a full teased out conversation with him outside of duress. Right. Uh, but at least they know we recognize that he's all powerful and we don't have the word amen or the word believed or belief in chapter one. But the book is on a trajectory of, of, of the goyim or the Gentiles, right. non-Jewish individuals turning toward Yahweh. So that gives credence to your point that this actually is them actually believing in God because it's already happened in chapter one with the going the nation, the Gentiles. Well, if say. it was not belief in God, first of all, the word that's used here in chapter three is the exact same, same word, word that's used for Abram in, in Genesis 15, six. Right. And the text literally says, Avram, amen. That's right. I mean, he believed God and it was reckoned unto him as or counted unto him, it's a financial term, as right standing so, or righteousness. So it's the, the fact that they it says they believed in God, Elohim, that, that doesn't say they believe in Yahweh, Elohim, just God. It's, it's and, and I think you're, this is maybe part of your point too, is that here's the Gentiles, they're responding to whatever little message they got from Jonah. They believe with the little knowledge that they have, they place faith in God. Just as the sailors now with the little knowledge, they don't have a full relationship with God, with Yahweh, Elohim, but they still respond appropriately to this God. Absolutely. And, and, and so you see this trajectory, this, this forward motion, if you will, heading toward faith in Yahweh, the covenantal God of, of the chosen people or of the people of God. The, the next aspect of this, though, is so a scholar could respond and say, well, um, um, the term Elohim could be used for 
in plural or it could be used in singular. But um, it could be used for gods. And of course, to corroborate that, that's absolutely true. It could be used generally of gods. It's right. used of, of false gods. It's used of um, the idols. It's used of uh, the heavenly court. Um, um, it's used of uh, demonic spirits right. in the first testament, right. uh, testament the shadim. Right. Um, it's it's used of of them and that, and it's used of the one true God. Here's the distinction. Right. The distinction is that Elohim is an office, and and in it being an office, it deity, as it were. Right. And so and so all persons concerning whom this term is used is not same categorically. Right. So when so, we're, even though you have a general word, like right. for instance, in this book, lexically, you have the general word dog for fish. Right. That is not to suggest that all fish are equal or all fish are the same. Right. You only have one fish. Right. <laughs> exactly. The prophet. So, so this term, this term Elohim, there is one who is distinct, right. who fills this office in a distinct manner or in a different manner than anyone else could because they don't have his characteristics or his essence. Yeah. So there is a distinction in the gods right. so and I, in the God. The way, I understand, and, and the way I understand Elohim, it's in one sense, it's a class yes. of spiritual being, let's say, whereas God is distinctly above and... Even above the gods. Above, He's God of gods. Right. In fact, it says that. But what's interesting is that my understanding is that when it comes to relating to, to Israel, it's Yahweh because there's there that covenant relationship, Right. But whereas now it's now in addressing the nations, the Gentile nations, those not Israel, it's Elohim uh, that that is being that is being uh, that is that they're known that they um, that he relates to them, I, I guess, as as Elohim. He doesn't relate to them as Yel, 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 Elohim Yahweh, as far as my understanding. It seems to be that's strictly covenantal within between God and Israel. But now you have God Himself, God Elohim reaching out to the goyim, to the nations. What is it? T that tells me something about this God. Well, it's, it certainly does say something about him. In, in, however, it should also be known that when it is referring to the God, a definite article, it is referring, it is a, the word, although it is plural with the I M ending, right. it is translated singular because right. he's, he's God alone. Right. Um, he's Yahweh Echad, right? right? Um, um, the only God or God alone. But when it's referring to other deities or other gods, uh, 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 spiritual beings, right. uh, uh, divine beings yeah. that are not God, then it's translated plural. Right. Here in this text, it's singular. It's kind of like you would say single sheep, but you'd say sheep right. for plural. Plus, it fits the context, though. For, I agree. It fits the context of the book. So we know, first of all, God, God, the Lord, Yahweh Elohim, has sent this prophet to Nineveh to proclaim his message. So it fits that they would respond to his message by believing in him. Well, apologetically, or as a defense at this point, then, what God is not going to do, he's not going to then relent from judgment and bless assimilation or the mixture of false godhood with true um, faith in the one true God. Now, you know what's interesting is as I'm looking at this, in verse 4, it gets the in verse 3, it says that this was a three days walk, perhaps, and perhaps there was three days 
that it would take for you to go to all of the public areas to proclaim your message. Mm-hmm. Here, it's it seems to indicate that Jonah had just began um, to go. It, it, he, that he just started out on this on the first day, and there's already a response that's like that that sort of sweeps the whole, the rest of the the city mm-hmm. just by just like just initially coming in and announcing this message. Like, Absolutely. It didn't take him very, very much time or effort, it would seem, for them to respond. And not only that, is it says that, that the people of Nineveh responded first. Yeah, that's interesting to me. And so it seems, what I think the point is here, is it seems that you also have the fruition that would come along with a belief in the one true God. Right. In other words, this is not that kind of Baalism where people are cutting themselves or doing things of this nature, but this is very kindred even to a stylistic repentance amongst the cultic practices of the Israelites. And, and I don't mean cultic as in, um, a cult or false. I mean that in a, a people who have a very concentrated focus, um, and reverence for, um, um, their deity. And in this particular case, even the stylistic form of repentance for this pagan nation nation is very consistent with the practices of the nation, uh, under Yahweh. You know, in verse five, it says that the ple- that the people. When you talk about the people believing in God, the people of Nineveh, which of course is going to f- affect now, it's going to start on a small scale in the sense of sort of the the little the common folk and reach the king's ears and his attention. What's interesting is that it's not like the king started out first and did an edict causing his people to respond. Right. It's the fact that they felt convicted. They all felt convicted to re, to re, to respond, and even the king himself, which tells me that there's a, um, I'm gonna try to say is there there's a there's there was a, a thorough a thorough work of God where, from the highest from the greatest to the least, or from the least to the greatest, or least to the case. greatest rather, and uh, of of response. What's interesting it says the people uh, that they believed in God. It seems to be that this is more than just believing he existed. This, by the very nature of their response, tells me there's a a surrender and a trust in him. An authenticity to yeah. their belief. It, to the point where, it, look at your, your pronouns, um, uh, they called a fast. Yeah. Now, now, the king is going to issue an official edict. But the pronoun reaches back to the antecedent, the people of Nineveh. They called a fast amongst themselves and they put on sackcloth, which, which is an interesting scenario because we recognize from the ancient Near Eastern world this sort of material. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a material that is an irritant to the skin. It's made of goat's hair. It's like really coarse and... Absolutely. In fact, we see it in, in one of the earliest books, if not the Job. earliest book of the Bible, Job, yeah. right? And and it is put there by the individual in order to bring about affliction. Right. But it's physiological symbolism really 
argues for a humbling or a humiliating of the soul and a lowering of the soul before God or as a result of circumstances of sorrow. And so this material would recommend some level of sorrow, some level of, of yeah. brokenness, some level of humbleness, which, which follows suit again with the practice of the people of God. And yeah. so the people of Nineveh believe they call a fast. This is a humbling of the soul through a humbling of the self physically. They literally forego food. Uh, they forego their, their, their necessary nutrients to, to force a weakness in order to say, this God hearing us is such a priority that we're willing to let go of that which which strengthens and nurtures us physically. That's phenomenal. You know what's it's striking about this, and that's as I'm thinking about this, is what the Lord did in in preparing them for this. Because it's not because here it seems almost effortless in one sense that Jonah comes out and announces his word. He doesn't say, again, like we said last time, thus says the Lord, I am Jonah, I'm the servant of the, the Yahweh Elohim, of Lord God, right? And here's a message from the Lord, and da, da, you know, and the full uh, prophetic oracle you would expect. The pattern. The pattern that would be there. He gives a snippet of that. And they still respond. And I'm wondering about the preparation that God does in a person's life to prepare them to receive, to repent. Like what, meanwhile, while Jonah is off on a fish somewhere, while he's running away, God had been doing something so that the, to bring the two at the right time where they were ready, right, to respond. And I'm just wondering that because the, the response of these people, this is a picture of true repentance, if you ask me. If you want a, an example of what repentance looks like, it's Jonah chapter three with these folks, you know. This is poor in spirit. This is broken heart. This is yeah. This is extraordinary. I mean, I mean, um, belief in Elohim uh, to call a fast for personal suffering um, to in to incite even further personal suffering with sackcloth from the gadol from the great. This probably speaks to um, um, the elite of the society. To the least of uh, to the least within the framework of that sociological framework, in other words, there is this concerted effort to turn away from and to. That looks like First Testament shuv. That right. looks like transitional testament and New Testament metanoia. Right. That looks like a belief that turns one. But here's what, here's what, if I remember correctly, and I've, I haven't uh, studied or taught Jonah in quite some time. If I remember correctly, there were things that happened within their own history. There was famines. There was, I understand that the Assyrians were actually weak at this time, which is why you had the king of Nineveh rather than the king of, of Syria. You have probably had uh, various things like earthquakes, things, signs, things that, things that God allowed to prepare them. Cataclysmic events that yeah. broke the society and, and, and garnered their attention. So I'm, I'm just wondering, what, what does God do to prepare a heart to receive? Because we talk about, in the New Testament, the soil of the heart, so to speak, you know. Mm -hmm. And what God has to do, or he often does, with, with somebody who's hard-hearted or somebody who's you know, has a heart that's not quite ready, the things he does in that person's life to, to ready them, uh, to have this kind of response, to have a response that hears God's word and responds 
truthfully, you know, and, and I'm just, maybe we could talk about that, just what God does to, to get a person ready, because the timing of Jonah coming and the timing of his message, um, it, it was like the one thing that was, that was like the, the drop of water that would cause the, the, the seed to sprout was his message, you know, and, but what God did to prepare them, I think is significant because if God's going to do something in somebody's life, you know, oftentimes he brings them through, uh, um, periods of, of desert time, periods of, of, of you know, uh, the things that you've tried that would be uh, successful, the things you've tried to, to meet a certain need don't, doesn't meet that need anymore. So you go, you try even more, and then everything, it seems like you've come to the end of yourself. It's, it's, it's the prodigal son who, who is now knows what it means to be hungry, and it's the, it's the um, you know, you just, the, whatever God uses in a person's life, to ready them for the for for hearing the gospel, and I just wonder what God did. I, I think um, the key word is a general term. Whatever God can use tragedy to break an individual, and He can also use blessing and the emptiness that one yet feels yeah. in the midst of blessing or prosperity. Um, in this particular case, it would seem historically that He used a series of natural events. Uh, a, a series of troubling events and the 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 weakness of a nation to bring about um, an opening of their ear, yeah. so to speak, uh, which which recommends this. It recommends if you look throughout the book, God uses um, um, the the waters. He uses a fish. He uses. Um, 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 the the tumultuous tumultuous storm, if you will. Yeah. He uses the message of Jonah. He uses a gourd that grows up overnight. Right. He uses the, what is not at God's disposal to break a man. Right. And 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 I think that's important. The the difficulty is, you need to know that if God is doing this to break you, it's an act of mercy on this on on behalf of God. You know something that just just hit me as you're as you're sharing this. We're I'm wondering what God um, did to prepare the Ninevites to hear this message. At the same time, God is doing something in Jonah's life to ready his heart, because by the time we get to chapter four, the still question is where is this? Where is his heart? You know, where is 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 he ready to see things the way God thinks you, know, you see these Gentiles as being worthy of receiving mercy? It's as if God is demonstrating, hey, he'll, he'll allow Jonah to go so far and let him experience the, the you know, going to the depths of the ocean and everything else, you know, and he's working on his heart, you know, and it's as if to say, I've done this with these Ninevites, but I'm still working on you, son. I'm still working on you, Jonah, and, the, and, and, and just to see what God would do, anything, right, to to get the heart to, to be ready to, you know, uh, to make it supple, to make pliable. it supple. Yeah. Um, and it seems that that's, it seems like in one sense, Jonah is the, um, is really the life lesson of this whole book of, of the, of the person of God that, you know, here in this stand, uh, Jonah himself, who's, who's so contrary to what he's supposed to be causing things in his life to, to change, to get his attention, to say, Hey, um, um, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to reach you, Jonah, you know, I'm trying to reach you. And, and his work on the Ninevites was separate, but I just think it's profound that, that Jonah is the character in this book 
who is so resistant to God's will, not the Ninevites, not the sailors, it's Jonah, you know, and what God is doing to capture his heart and to get his attention. So anyway, that just goes through my brain as I'm looking no, at the text. I, I think that's a profound point. If I pick up with um, verse number six, after the list of belief, the fast, the, the sackcloth within the framework of society, please notice that this external demonstration as a result of an internal work of the Holy Spirit. Now let's put this in a political framework because it is in a political framework. I argue that from the title that we're given next in the next verse, it reached the king. In other words, this spiritual phenomena that is taking place is a work of God among the people that is not initiated politically or even initiated at the top. Let me, can I just interject something here? Yes. It's sort of, and, and, and the king of, in verse six is going to also announce a, a fast and everything else. Just the, the idea of, of fasting, you know, which, which is not a new, you know, it's not, new, but it, not a new thing. It's, you know, people do fasting for various reasons, but in the scriptures are just, because when you fast, of course, you know, at first all you do is think about food, right? I'm hungry, I'm hungry. But fasting is meant to, in one sense, devote your attention to something other than, than the food, right? It's by deliberately afflicting the body in some way. And, and in that means telling the flesh, right? You're not in control. Right. And it's, it's the same thing where Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God in the sense of you have my full attention as is basically mm-hmm. when, when, when somebody would fast, you know, you have various examples of people fasting, um, um, Nehemiah, Daniel, they all, you know, fasted for some reason. So, so their response is, you've got my attention and we have, we are, we are mourning over our, we are putting the sackcloth, we are mourning over our sin, you know, we are, and the fasting is, is, showing God they have, he, he has their attention. You have my full devotion as far as what you're trying to say. And the fact that it reaches the king who is, you would think he's removed and above that or removed from all that. But the fact, because he could have said, well, that's just them, you know, it's just for the little people. The fact though that he sees it is significant. Now, now juxtapose that, yeah. John, right? So we're going to date this prophet about the 800s or 750 thereabout. Right. But at about 700 or thereabout, Isaiah is going to address the fact that although the people know something of fasting, God's people. Yes, yes, yes. chapter 58. Yes, yes. That they do external stuff with no spiritual um, um, conviction. Right. And, and so what we're talking about here is not just a physiological affliction. Right. It is the deliberate effort on behalf of the individual to say, Lord, whatever is blocking my soul's ears and stopping them from hearing you, I am prioritizing you and I am deliberately putting halts on the forwarding of the flesh are those things that seem to feed human life and energy. Let me just tie it because, because you mentioned a good point because it wasn't just them fasting and sackcloth. 
they have another appropriate response in later on how the king says, you know, nobody's going to eat, but then may call on this God and may that each man may turn from his wicked way and, and from violence. And what's interesting is in, in the Isaiah 58 passage, it says, um, uh, da, 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 da. it says, they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness is Isaiah 52, uh, 58 verse 2 and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for decisions, just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted? And you do not see this is what they're saying. Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, you desire, you find all your desire and you drive hard your workers, like you're doing one thing, but you're treating people differently. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. And you do not fast like you do today to, to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this, which I choose a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bad? Will you call this a fast, even acceptable day of the Lord? Like going through the emotions, we're showing we're fasting. Here's what God says, though. Is this not the fast which I choose? Here it is. To loosen the bonds of wickedness and to undo the bands of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house? When you see the naked to cover him and do not hide yourself from his own flesh. So you're talking about, you know, the true fasting is more than just a show of here's we're going through the fasting and the sackcloth and all that. It's also including how you treat people, you know. Well, well for the people of God to summate it very, very carefully and tersely, true biblical fasting has spiritual <coughs> ramifications personal ramifications and sociological or societal ramifications right, right and 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 so the the reality of the fast effect upon the person doing it can be seen in their vertical uh, response to God, their personal transformation that is aligned with biblical truth, and then their tendency to to live out that truth, um, amongst people. And, and I think this is actually what you see here right. within the framework of this text. Um, I, I, I think there's something interesting here, John, because as I was saying before, um, so what you see is you see this transformation beginning amongst the people, not politically, but spiritually. Isn't that phenomenal? Yeah that the greatest changes that have been of a long-lasting <clears throat> nature have not been, in, in, in the history of humanity, yeah. have not been politically um, initiated, but spiritually initiated. Yeah. I think that's profound. That's, that's, that's very profound. I, and it's, we can talk a whole a few hours just on that part alone. Um, politics doesn't change people. Listen, rules and regulations do not. And, and, and I know that many people want to suggest that, that this is the means by which to do this. But it wasn't politics that got the attention of this king. No. Look at the brokenness of his people. This is, uh, well, yeah, go on. And so in, in chapter <clears throat> verse, uh, 3, verse number 6, when the word reached the king, now, now, what word? Remember, the pretext is in all likelihood not only the message 
but then the people's response. response. Right. right. What, do you, what do you hear? Hear the message and how the response. Yeah. Right. Then when the, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, I love this. He arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him. Mm-hmm. It, the people have already covered themselves, but the king covers himself. Now, this is well, interesting. Yeah, I'm seeing things too. <laughs> I know, I know. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm just, I, you probably already saw this too, where it says he arose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a tie back to, to, to Jonah. <laughs> Arise, okay, go to Nineveh. Okay, he rose. The difference here is is that whereas Jonah goes, uh, it says verse three, Jonah arose up. But then he flees. He'll end up going down to the ship, down to the belly, right? Mm -hmm. Here, this man willingly, out of obedience, rises up to go down, but in a different manner, right? Absolutely. Once Jonah is out of rebellion, this is out of repentance. Well, what what you're referring to is this. Yeah. You're referring to the fact that an author will oft use a play on a word. And so, whereas Jonah arises to run, kum yeah. is the root word. And whereas God says to him, um, chapter number three, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time or again. Right. Right. And he said, Jonah, kum or arise. arise yeah. Right. But now you have the same word kum. There is an <clears throat> arising within this king. And this arising within this king is in response, listen, to the moving of God. Yeah. That's extraordinary. So, so you see this play on, on arising. Go on, go on, because I'm and, thinking and, more and, things. And a, true, <laughs> and a true arising, or may I switch the word? Yeah. A true awakening. Right. Is vertical in nature. That's, uh, that's, yeah, that's, um, the awareness. Um, I, what, what I'm seeing in the same text and the same with, with the king arising from his throne and Jonah, if you can picture the parallel, right? The king arises from his throne, lays aside his robe as king, which is royal nakedness, right? But Jonah, in one sense, arises and tries to lay aside his role as a prophet of God. One out of rejection for that calling. This one out of humility, recognizing that the king recognizes that before God, he is no longer royal in the sense of he's, you know, he submits himself to God's... To divine royalty. To divine royalty. The, The contrast is, you know... Jonah ups and goes and tries to, and rejects that divine royalty of God, whereas the king recognizes, hey, before God, I am, I am just like the rest of the people here. You have this 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 um, this humility of this king, of oh, the humility of the people, the of humility the people, of the king, to go and and to step down from his role. It's the contrast can be can't be any more just. Um, um, Pronounced. Pronounced. Yeah, it's very, it's very clear and drastic. That's that's the significance and the fact that he would step down and also cover himself with the sackcloth and the ashes. Hugely significant. Did you catch that? Because he removes the role. Right. And he puts on goat's hair. Yeah. So, so, but he's now 
more lovely yeah. in his humility than in his royal regality. Do you wonder if, if, if Jonah, I don't know if, it doesn't say that Jonah saw this, but imagine if Jonah w- witnessed this, how convicting oh. of, of, to him, like it's like a mirror or a picture saying, this is what y'all, what Jonah, what you should have understood or, or how you should have responded. And now they're actually showing you up in their, in their obedience to the word of God. But I think there's an obstinance in the prophet's heart because whatever he came to see or know, he goes with a stubborn um, um, inclination. Yeah. Just God's not going to pay attention to that. Really, I hope he doesn't pay attention to that. Right. But, but, but does this remind you of something that you just preached through, John? Blessed are the people who are poor in spirit. Mm. Yeah. Um, They're ready to receive. I mean, that's where it starts. If we're talking, like I, I've taught, yeah, the, and the Beatitudes at top. In a person's life, it all begins at that first one, the poor in spirit. That's where it all begins with a, a, a person who, if you want a person who to to follow the Lord, they can't follow the Lord until they've come to the place of being poor in spirit, where they are they surrendered, they, they recognize their own position of of poverty before God, spiritual Absolutely. poverty before God, of being in the need of the Lord and recognizing um, our own uh, destitution, our own need and insufficiency, right? A person will not change directions until they recognize they're going the wrong direction. And here that began, that is the most crucial thing in any act of repentance, which is significant. This is a picture of repentance. The King himself is even participating in that. It's not just for them. It's, it's for, it's for everyone. But the point is, the humility in that, it begins there. Repentance begins there. So extraordinary to me. This king who had on royal dress takes on a new covering that is indicative of humility and suffering. And he sits. Do you notice the, the contrast for a robe he takes on goat's hair? Yeah. For 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 a sumptuous dining table, he takes on fasting. For a seat or a throne, he trades it for ashes. Yeah, he he just he takes the place of of humility and selflessness. Um, it's the picture of Job. Um, Job 2 says that, and, and, and he took a potsherd and to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. And then when his friends came, it says they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him, with Job, that is, for seven days and seven nights, no one speaking a word to him, for they saw his pain was very great. This response of humility, of repentance of wow it's it's that's a holy it's yeah that's my my point is if jonah had beheld that i wonder how he would have responded if he even saw this because that's that is there's no fighting against that in other words how do you fight against somebody that's already down but 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 listen to that john because i love your question but listen an obstinate heart can see the work of god and give no due diligence or respect to it. Mm. I know that because chapter four is there. Yeah. 
because whatever he saw or didn't see, surely he saw some of these responses. Yeah. He sits on his perch, and in sitting on his perch, his conclusion is, no, God's going to get them. And then he gets upset. Why didn't you get them? So, so let's ask the question, because now we're, we're bringing up the proper response of humility by the king and the people. Proper response of repentance. Of re- repentance, that's what I mean. But the proper repentant response. And yet Jonah won't elicit or demonstrate that in the rest of the book. He's obstinate. What causes a person to have the obstinate heart and for the obst- for them to remain obstinate? Because I think that's the real question is why are there why are there people who still hold on to the obstinance before God, despite the grace and mercy of God being demonstrated all around. But by, by the way, John, in the context of this book, you do know that Jonah is very much aware of their sin, right? Right. Interesting. He's able to see through a scope their sin. He's having a really hard time identifying his own. Do you know, that's something we talked about in the couple of uh, broadcasts before, is in chapter 2 when he prays, um, there is absolutely no confession of sin. <laughs> you know that? Yes. It, there is, I called out on the Lord in my distress and he answered me. Great. God answered his cry from the, the, the deep and the heart of the seas and everything else. And he talks about how he descended to the, the you know, roots of the mountains and and down to the depths of the sea. And then he, while he was fainting away, he remembered the Lord. Which, which, by the way, is a contrast to the pattern of prayer employing the term zakar with Yahweh concerning a person. Zakar, remember? Yeah, yeah. zakar, to, to rejoint oneself. Right. He, he, he's, he's, he has this, I rejointed myself. Right. I, I'm the one who recalled and became covenantally connected in fellowship See, again. See, that's the distinction. It should be, then God remembered. Then Yahweh remembered me. Right. That's the pattern. That's the in the first testament. So he isn't. So it says, yeah, because just says God remembered Noah, or you know, back in Genesis. But it says, while I was fainting, I remembered the Lord. Yeah. And my prayer came to 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 to, to thee in thy holy mountain. There, there is no repentance. There's no recognizing. It's I did this, God. Yeah. I remembered you. I, I will. Then I will repay. I will sacrifice to thee. With thanksgiving, the the and with the vow that I I have vowed, I will pay. It's all him. So although this fits into the framework of a penitential psalm, prayer of of repentance, it lacks It'll, the yeah. very thing that would make it that, namely, I'm wrong. Right. I'm sorry, and I'm turning. See, but here's the thing that's scary. I know people who are like this, even in the church, uh, that. That it all is begins and ends with them. I did this. I did rather than the Lord did this for me. The Lord and and that's and I think that's what the the difference between this prayer that he prays in chapter two versus the the prayer uh, and repentance of chapter three um, by the king. You have true repentance that recognizes the one's own sin, one's own need for God, rather than, well, I got myself out of this. 
that's the distinction between the two. Jonah never comes to the end of himself. He never recognizes his own sin or his own need of God. John, to go beyond people, I think this is hard to identify in yourself. Well, it's hard to identify in myself when, when, when you are fastly tied to, but look at what they've done, right? But look at who they are. And then you have this self-righteous posture, whatever I've done, I haven't done that. Right. Which, which is a, which is a misunderstanding of sin. (laughs) Right. Because, because while there are gradations of sin in that, in that there are differences in high-handed sins versus sins by um, omission or commission, etc., um, more blatant sins and high-handed sins, etc. Also, gradations in sin wherein it has a different effect on people, yet all sin is equally damnable before a holy God. And according to Torah, if you sin in, in one area, to offend one law. No sin is alone. No sin is single. It always has multiple children. Do you know there's a, there's a parallel just between what Jonah doesn't come to, right? The point of himself as the sinner, himself as the one needing uh, the grace. There's a parallel between what happens here in Jonah and like, say with New Testament, with Jesus. Watch this parallel. Jesus, who is of course the one that's greater than Jonah, who is God himself, Jesus is with his fishermen. And just as Jesus is able to control the fish in Jonah, Jesus can be able to control the fish uh, in such a way that, for example, he says, now put the nets out into to the deep for a catch, right? But Simon says, we've worked, Master, we've worked all, all, all night and caught nothing, but at, at your bidding, we'll do it, it right? at your word. At your word. And when they did this, they caught such a large quantity of fish, the nets began to break. Fast forward. Simon Peter responds by saying what? He falls down at Jesus' feet and says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Here you have, you have God himself who controlled that fish to get him, deliver him, keep him alive. And no awareness of the of the of the sinfulness of himself and the and the awareness of God's holiness and greatness. Whereas Peter, in just a matter of Jesus catching a fish, same Lord, different you know, different sized fish, he comes to the realization that this is God and I'm a sinful man before God. The point is, is Jonah compares himself with other people, right? But he's but con, with confronting with God, as Isaiah the prophet was confronted with God. He hasn't been made aware of his own. He's still looking at at what everybody else is doing wrong and where they're falling short rather than realizing I I need repentance. And nowhere in the story do you have repentance of Jonah. I don't see it. I I would like to. I I would think that it would be a natural result. That's why I point out the, the contrast of the authenticity of their belief. Yeah. With the questionable nature of of his of his actions and, and behavior and 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 his belief played out not not that he's not an authentic belief in a believer in Yahweh but 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 what I see in in this verse again as I parallel this to the mariners 
response. And now I look at that response even heightened in this Gentile nation and a very crude people at this point in their history. I'm astounded at how high God can bring a man mm. by bringing him so low. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the brother's gone down to the depths of the ocean. <laughs> you would think if anyone who's, who's, who has gone through that journey would have been prepared to say, all right, Lord, like you, you would, you would think after what he's been through, he would have had at least some, by the way, inclination of change. I, I think John, that, that this, this, this number seven is unfortunate in the text because from my perspective, it interrupts from whence this decree comes. You see, you could read it and you could say he issued a proclamation and it said, right? Yeah. Or you could read it. The king who just arose from his throne and just laid aside his robe and had just covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. It is from that humility that this proclamation is issued forth. Right. In other words, what births this proclamation, this royal decree, is his brokenness yeah. before God. He's, it says, and he issued a proclamation and it said, you're talking about the king that he was now had been stripped. Him, uh, you know what's interesting is, is that he says in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. This is not just. Yeah, this is extraordinary because this is because his stripping of himself and his brokenness is in the text not only evident but it's also voluntary at this point. Well, what I'm looking at here is because it says, and do not let them eat or drink. Normally a fasting is just with refraining from eating. But what gets me is this. Okay, so if you have animals, let's say, you have you know cattle and sheep, if you don't feed them... They become gaunt and weak. Well, you, you I, are subject to lose some. You might lose some, but... I'm I'm getting the sense that that perhaps they're going to go they're going to they're going to cry out themselves. I'm getting the sense of you know when when a kid doesn't eat they cry when a, when a, you know a dog or or cattle I don't know if, you know they perhaps they're there's a lot of mooing and there's a lot of bleeding of sheep there's a lot of a lot of noise as if to say they're joining in with the chorus of crying out to, I don't know if that's but, what the text means but, but it's but what interesting you're saying is there's an all-inclusive suffering and yes. humbling and and that which is under the charge of the king of the sovereign he brings it into subjection right in order to pursue god in brokenness. So in one sense, his fast, and this may be a lesson, this, this fast that he does or leads in or participates in is a fast that is so affects, affects every area of their life. Yes. This isn't just a, you know, this is something where they're so serious on, get, on getting God's attention and showing God that every area of your life is, is affected by it. It's not just a religious service we're doing. This is mean, this is God, you have all, you have my attention to the point that even my animals aren't going to eat either, because that's how serious we are. I'd rather have my animals die than than 
than be destroyed by you, God, or be you know punished by. You. I'd rather sacrifice that part that you, know, you have my attention. Uh, priorities are reestablished. You know, uh, uh, God's priorities are are established in in the response. I just think it's interesting because I've never heard of of, of having. You know, fasting for your beast and, and your flock, not letting them taste or drink or anything, and they are participating with you, and you're prioritizing whose or what is more, more important. And in this case, of course, they got, God has got their attention. If and that, the, go on. If you're looking at verse number 8, in lieu of verse number 7, not letting them eat or drink, these are the two elements that are necessary for for nutrients for healthiness for the sustaining of life so there's going to be a a societal weakness do you yeah. realize how vulnerable they are even now yeah. to other nations i mean because you have a weak animals you have weak soldiers you have a weak king you have a a, a weak society and and then in verse 8 but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, that material which bespeaks of self-humbling and suffering. Um, just something about this strikes me as the fact that they recognize the severity of the threat, the severity of the message, uh, that they would, they would, they would uh, go without and. I mean, I know this is not a, a real parallel text, but it reminds me of Uriah, who comes back from war. David has already um, slept with his wife Bathsheba and has gotten her pregnant, and now David's trying to set Uriah up, you know, to sleep with his wife so that he can get off. And Uriah has such pure motives that he says, "My men are out there on the battlefield. How can I go and do this and and enjoy myself?" When I recognize the, they're still in battle, and I am, the the priority is what I'm talking about. The priority of, maybe it's not a, like it's not a parallel, but the priority of the importance of what God is doing is such that that nothing in their life would not be a, a, a part of it, not be affected by it. That that has that message is so thorough. It's not just a lip service. We believe in God. It has so affected their life from. Um, from every aspect of their life, including their well-being, because they have to eat, they have to raise sheep, they have to sell their cattle. What do they have to do? Their their economy is affected. Their 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 physical you know, everything is affected because God has gotten their attention. But 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 John, your statement assumes something. It assumes that if they do not realize that God is the priority, that life will go on as normal. Right. You see, isn't that the deception? Yeah. That the choice of my life is either God. Or a life without God. Right. No. That, that's deception because God is life. Right. He's the source of life. So the person who thinks that they're going to be able to live life and have a real life, authentic life without God, is engaged in self-deception because there is no life outside of God. The sacrifice is actually an invitation and an embracing of true life. Yeah. But the life that you think you're living as a priority and all of the things you think you are putting before God, that's, that's not life. Th those are, those are um, little trinkets right. on the way to the grave. 
you know, it's, it, there's something that their king recognizes, something that I think Jesus alludes to. It's, it's the fact that many people today think that they have, they have life. They think, well, I have, I have possessions. I have, I have a, a, a career. I have, I have a name. And, they, and, they, and I have stuff, right? And, I have, and I'm surrounding my, myself with, with, with things. But they're not living. They're not alive. Because life doesn't come from things. It comes from God. Our very existence, our very life itself is from God himself. Strip away those things and you have God, you have life. You strip away God and you have those things, you have no life. See, life is not found in, as Jesus says, in the, in the accumulation of things, right? Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God is that necessary component, the necessary ingredient to all of life. Without God being involved in the picture, there is no life. May I, may I rephrase that, John? Sure. If a person is walking with God... They are walking in true life. The trees are actually real and organic and green, and there's actually real sense. You can, you can touch it. You can feel it. You can smell it. You can taste it. That's an analogy. If you're not walking with God, you're walking through a museum of decor that pretends to be lively, and the spray might smell like a tree, the leaf might be similar to a tree, but it's a monument to death, not life. So you're walking through a mausoleum. You are. You're walking through a mausoleum of death on your way to death. Yeah. See, that's, and that's the vital thing about repentance. The vital thing that, that I think is necessary here is that, is that recognizing the trajectory of your life that has gone the opposite way of God, where God's not in the picture. Yeah, you say God's in the picture. You think about it once in a while. But reality is you, you, your life is not surrendered to him because if, it, if, because if it was, it would be entirely surrendered to him. Not just in a thought here, a thought there. It, you would you, you stop fooling yourself, okay? It is, <laughs> it is a matter of, of complete, God, you have my attention. That's what the king says here is God has gotten our attention. In fact, he says, who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent. Well, let's call on this God earnestly. You know, you've gotten our attention, God. The point is this. When you recognize that not, not your very existence, your very fulfillment, your very purpose that, that you are here on this earth is all sourced from God, God himself. Until you come to the point you're just living with things around and people around and you're pursuing your own thing, but God's not in the picture. You have no life. You just merely exist. But listen to what he says, John. He says, and let men call on God. Here's the how and the attitude with intensity. Right. Earnestly. Um, yeah. With, with force, with vigor, with strength is the, the yeah. idea of the Hebrew. But then you go on beyond that and, and notice his first statement is not, and maybe God will turn. <laughs> Do you see? The, the, the order of the structure is, so let's call on him with intensity that each, each may turn. Each one may turn. They, see, we'll, we'll go, here's, there's the tie, though. There's the tie. Because remember I said when, 
Jonah's message was yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yes. The Hebrew word can mean two different things. One, overturn as in like Sodom and Gomorrah, destruction. Mm-hmm. It also can mean turning now there's as in repentance that that hebrew word earlier different, but is this, a different hebrew word this one is the root shuv in this in this text um that they may turn but the idea is the same is that they're turning conceptually the right. idea is but 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 there can be a turn and by the way this term is a key term in the first testament for both men and god um, right. um, there's going to be a play off of that in just a moment. And the idea is they're turning away from their wickedness or their sin and, and turning away from their wickedness is simply we've been advantaging ourselves as a society by disadvantaging others to use the definition that Dr. Bruce Walkie uses Th- this, this selfishness that has resulted in such violence and destruction, they realize this is is an ordinate. This is not the way to do this. This is not honoring to God. Do you notice he says in verse 8, that men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from violence, which it is in his hands. You know what it prevents a lot of people from turning to God and turning... Is that they're so busy working at looking at other people's lives, so busy judging other people, that they don't have a chance. To, they have not taken an opportunity to say, "I need to turn from my own wicked ways. I need to turn from my own the things that are in my." In other words, there's a, there's no longer, you know, we'll look at them, look at them. It's me before God. As needing to change, as needing to turn. That's even more significant as well, because this isn't just something that is commissioned by the king and is forced upon people. This is now each person needs to recognize their own because they stand before God themselves. It's a it's a it's a thorough work of the Lord in in bringing repentance. And, you know, it's it's um, it's it's not where you because there's what happens is is we tend to want to deflect Right. Well, look, well, don't look at me. Look what they did. And we want to we want to um, take the attention off ourselves. Uh, um, It's the woman that you gave me. Yeah, it's it's. Well, what about him, Lord? You follow me, Jesus. And it's it's the um, not not allowing the spirit of God and the word of God to get the attention of our own heart. Isaiah, the prophet says, woe is me. For I have seen the Lord, right? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, right? It's the idea of now God has got my attention, the attention of my heart. And no longer am I looking at others because they're bad. I'm looking at myself and saying, well, before you, God, I need, I need to turn as well. But consider, John, the flow of brokenness and faith in the text. Um, verse... Four is a hearing of the word of God. Verse five is a response right. to the word of God in belief that is now unpacked or teased out in humility, in brokenness, in 
doing that which one can in his or her own environment to forward the truth of God, listen, in a sincere way that calls out to or cries out to God with vigor, that insists upon a belief that is different concerning God than had been held before, that results in a turning away from one's evil or wickedness, and not just turning away from that in mind or, or in heart, but in action, violence right. in one's hands. Now, I want to pause there because this is the question, right? First of all, what does it take for me to turn? What could it be that God is putting in my path now that is prepping me to turn? If I'm the prophet, what has God put in my path that I've ignored and I've seen both of, both of suffering and of triumph in a response to the message? And still I choose to be the same man. If I'm the people, what is it that God has, has primed the prompt with so that when he prepares to speak to me, I am ready? For our audience, what does it take to get you to that place? It, it, listen, this text is extreme. It doesn't always have to be the same scenario that brings us to this brokenness and to this humility. Here's what I pray, John. Romans 2, verse 4, raises a question to the Jewish person who's reading the book and is going to, in a moment, be indicted as guilty, just like in chapter 1, the Gentile person was. Don't you know that it's the goodness of God that leads you to change your mind? I pray that I will. That's, that's one of my constant prayers. Please draw me to a change of mind and action by your goodness. Let me afflict my soul. Let me become broken because you're so good to me. But John, the other facet of that is, but if you, if you break us in another way, I don't want to walk through a museum or a mausoleum that is a monument to death with the fakery of, 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 of things that look like they're alive. I want to walk through a garden with God where there's real life. And I, and I may not have all of the accoutrements of, of, of the pretense of life, right? The royal robe and the throne and the... He who has ashes and sackcloth and brokenness now will have joy in the presence of God and a deathless life. That's profound. And so I, I employ, no, I implore our believers many times when we go through these broadcasts, John, we come to a fascinating climactic conclusion, but I'd like to conclude with the climax that was given to us by afforded us by the very Son of God. If you're an unbeliever, I have a message for you. I can't say yet 40 days, but I can say one day. 
God's judgment is going to come upon you. You'll be overthrown. You will experience the justice of God. And you don't want that. Because you will stand on the opposing side of the king of righteousness. And you won't be able to say, ah, but my neighbor, ah, but my friend, ah, but compared to this flailing church member who I know. No, no. You'll stand as weighed by the character of a holy God. You'll be overthrown. Except you repent. Now, how do you do that? First of all, the Holy Spirit has to be at work in your heart because there's no amount of words that I'm going to say that are going to be efficaciously convincing to you, but I am doing my job in that I am told to speak the Word of God to you because you need to hear by means of a preacher. And that preacher has to be sent. John and I are sent to you today. Well, well what should I do? Well, you can't just believe in your God or your form of God. No, no. You have to believe in the God of the Bible, in Trinity, and you have to believe in his Son who has come to give his life on your behalf in order to take away the judgment of God upon you. What does that look like? Your belief should lend itself to a trust, to a reliance that humbles your heart and sees your soul in a state of impoverishedness. You're broken before a whole and holy God. And what you should do is you should lay aside those things that seem to elevate you. Whatever your throne, whatever your robe is. And you come before God in true brokenness as it were, in a spiritual sackcloth and say, God, I'm poor. And you sit in the ashes. And you know what he does? When you call out to him in this way, and when you cry out in earnestness, listen to the New Testament. When you call on the character or the name of God, he'll save you. And so now, I pray, Lord, for our listeners, that those who are not believers would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who has come in the flesh and who has died, not simply historically, but died for them as the object of God's affection. And I pray, Lord, that whatever their seat of authority, whatever their seat of advantage is, that they would get off of it right now in their own souls and they would recognize and confess the impoverishedness of their state before a holy God, not as compared to anyone else who may have made a miserable mess or picture of the Christian life, but in connection to a holy God, they may see their true state and that they would simply believe, but that belief would have a trust of reliance. And that they would see your son as the priority of life. 
as the point of all existence and they might trade the mausoleum of death for the garden of life granted and found in and by the Son of God who died, who was buried and, buried and who was risen again on their behalf and that believing in him they might have life, a deathless life in his name. In the book, it says, who knows, he may relent. From a New Testament perspective, we can say we know. Because if you come to Christ, Christ is God's answer, saying, I accept the sacrifice and I will relent. I will save you and give your soul true wealth found in Jesus, the Son of God. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth. <laughs>